Hello and welcome to the Daily Record Politics podcast. We're here talking about the 20th anniversary of the Scottish Parliament with Jack McConnell. Now I'm going to try once his full official title and then it's going to be Jack. But Let's hear you pronounce for it. For form, <clears throat> I'm with the Lord McConnell of Glen Cor... Oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> the pressure! Glenn Scorridale, was that well correct? Done. Well done. Excellent. Uh, so, rather than give you uh, Jack, as I'm now going to call him, his full CV, I'm going to ask him to fill that in a bit because I think it's really interesting to look at where he was um, when it became clear we were going to get a Scottish Parliament and what his thought process was about whether that's that was the next step in his political career. So, Paint us a picture of where you were at that point. Oh, well, um, where, I, where I came from is probably, is probably important as well because I had grown up on the Isle of Arran uh, on a sheep farm. No politics in the family at all. Only sheep? Only sheep. Uh, lots of them. Um, dogs, of course, as well, uh, trying to look after the sheep. And... Um, I'd become quite political as a teenager, so I got very interested in things that were going on all over the world. Uh, then became, a, as I'd always wanted to, became a mathematics teacher in uh, secondary schools. Worked in two different schools in Stirling and uh, Tullibury. And uh, I, had, I suppose I probably had the option of standing for Westminster. I did stand once for Westminster in 87 against Nicky Fairbairn in Perth, which was a highly entertaining uh, uh, few weeks of my life. I can imagine lots of yellow tartan trousers. A fair bit of uh, alcohol as well, if I remember rightly. <laughs> um, I don't think he would even mind me saying that, so you're probably not going to get sued if we uh, if we say that. Uh, and But I decided very early on that what I wanted to do was spend my 30s in the 1990s campaigning for and working for a Scottish Parliament. Uh, through the Constitutional Convention, and then, if possible, standing for it. So when it so came, that up, was when a it clear came path. along in 99, um, I felt that the Parliament would need people who were committed to it, believed that it could make a difference for Scotland, and uh, that those of us who'd campaigned for it had a duty to get in there and uh, and make it work. So, uh, so I stood for election, I, but I stood in Motherwell and Wisher, which was a very different part of the world to where I'd grown up. Uh, even quite different from Stirling, where I'd been living um, for my adult life, and uh, got to. But I got to know the constituency well. Moved into the constituency, which I thought was important, and uh, represented Motherwell and Wishaw from '99 right through to 2011. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it was never any doubt in your mind that fight campaigning for a Scottish Parliament and then standing for it was a logical progression, and Westminster wasn't massively a consideration. No, I mean, having MPs at Westminster for my party was important to me. And I, as, uh, uh, as General Secretary of the party in the mid-90s, you know, I did everything I could to help bring about the, the result in, in 97. But my my two passions were devolution for Scotland and uh, the international issues that I'd cared about since I was a teenager. But I had made a very conscious decision that we needed to fix the issue of the Scottish Parliament, get it get it established. And then if I was able to serve in it and be part of it and help it achieve change for Scotland, then that would have been an amazing outcome. And I got, I, I mean, I sat there on the first day with my dad and my Uncle Willie in the, in the gallery, um, taking the oath of, uh, as, as a new member of the Scottish Parliament, just pinching myself, thinking this is just amazing. It's 
really is history being made. I don't think anyone who was there that day or anyone who talks about it um, is, doesn't have an emotional memory of it, a very, very special memory. It's, I think it just stands out as a, an absolute one-off um, and a really, really memorable day. Absolutely. I mean, the whole two months was just uh, from, from the election day through to the, the, the official opening on the 1st of July. It was just a whole series of firsts. You know, you had the first point of order by Dennis Canavan, surprise, surprise. And, you know, you had the first written question, the first oral question, the first statement, the first speech. The, uh, uh, but the, but the, the really amazing days for me were uh, that first day taking the oath um, and being very proud to have uh, family in the gallery. And then I think about nine, maybe eight days later, being appointed Minister for Finance by Donald. Uh, Is it true uh, that that um, this was on the basis that you were one of the few people who could do hard sums? Well, I think he, uh, the only person, I think, is what he actually said to the Queen. Uh, that night, he introduces uh, the cabinet members to the Queen at a, a small reception at Holyrood House. And he actually said, to, yes, he did say to her, um, this is Jack McConnell. He's the new finance minister and we, uh, he's the only one amongst us that can count. Uh, which was maybe, so no maybe pressure there a then? Bit, a lot of pressure, but also a bit, I was a bit worried about my colleagues at that point. Well, there is that, isn't it? <laughs> and then, of course, there was the official opening on the 1st of July, which is the, you know, was an incredible day and not just Donald's amazing speech, but uh, Sheena Wellington, who was a family friend, you know, you know captivating you know, the hearts of the nation, really, by, by singing on the day. Was just That's amazing. one of the moments that everyone picks out as bringing a lump to their oh, throat, oh, wasn't it? Just every, every bit of my body was just feeling that moment. And But there was a lot to do. You know, I think we forget now because it's quite well established and it, it feels now a bit as if it's always been there, but there was everything to do and set up and organise from scratch. There was an incredible amount to do. I As finance minister... I discovered right away that I was going to have to present the first official piece of legislation to the Parliament. Um, there was an emergency bill to deal with uh, a particular issue in the summer. But the first actual full act of the Parliament had to be the, the rule that set up the, the rules for budgeting. So um, and, and also set up a body called Audit Scotland, which was then to become the kind of... Uh, 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 the, the newly created body that would keep an eye on public finance in Scotland and how it was being spent. Um, and that, I mean, I, I hadn't been in a parliament before, so I was going to take through this really important piece of legislation without any experience of sitting in a parliament dealing with amendments and all that kind of thing. So it was a huge challenge, but it was great. It was so exciting. And I mean, the fact that that, that act of parliament still stands today and that we have remarkably, I think, in the 20 years of the Parliament, when I think all but 15, maybe 15 of those years, there's not been an absolute majority for any one party in the Parliament. Every year, the Parliament has passed a budget on time mm. for 20 years. So and that you got that all, it was all in place. You all, got it all worked. Lot, lot to do. But I think much more importantly, um, when people are looking back over the 20 years, everybody's got a kind of positive and a negative, a good thing and a bad thing the Parliament's done. But you need to look back at what Scotland was like in 1999. Mm. You know, this was a country where, for example, politicians still appointed judges. Um, a country that had been depopulating. A de you know, that, that, that fear in Scotland that more people left than came, and that affected our economy. We were going through 
the whole problem of the manufacturing jobs that had been created in the early 90s, going to Eastern Europe and then going on to, 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 to Asia. Um, we had morale in our education system that was rock bottom and had been for a decade or more. Uh, we had a terrible public health record as a country, terrible recycling record. Uh, and we were the second worst in Europe. We, had the, you know, we were known as the public health disaster of Europe. Um, we had really bad problems of knife violence and so on in Glasgow and in some other parts of the country. These, these were really big, big problems. Never mind the other things we wanted to do that were positive. Uh, just facing up to and starting to tackle some of these challenges. And I think, you know, despite all the political ups and downs of the 20 years, uh, the, uh, the, the the Parliament has has made a good effort to actually tackle some of these big issues. And uh, Scotland is a far, far better place today than it was 20 years ago. Mm, mm, definitely. Um, so you, you um, became First Minister in 2001 following on from... Um, Donald Dewar, who very sadly died in yes. office, and then Henry McLeish, um, who uh, had an un- an unpleasant, had a difficult year, uh, difficult year, and that expenses thing that I think everyone agrees was a, a muddle rather than you know, but that's what happened, and um, I think there was a feeling you talked about there being a lot of firsts. The, the, that was the first scandal, and everyone was kind of hungry for the first scandal, and and he kind of fell victim to that. So anyway, that's slightly ancient history. You became First Minister in 2001. How was that, stepping into the big chair? Well, if there was a sense of responsibility in, in May 1999, it was nothing compared to the sense of responsibility I felt in, uh, in November 2001. It was... It came at the end of a really difficult two years. I mean, even the, even the really experienced people like Donald Dewar had found... The, the transparency of the new parliament, the level of expectation, the, the, the biz around it, if you, if you like, really hard to cope with. Um, the, the civil service had done, you know, in many ways had done an amazing job helping create the parliament and, uh, uh, and then helping to, to, to make it work from the beginning. Um, but the, the Scottish civil service was used to having three or four ministers in the Scottish office who dropped in on a Monday morning and a Friday Sometimes and they did um, like one bill a year, to, didn't they? To, Something like that. Aye, and maybe one, or two, one, maybe two, if you're lucky, uh, acts of parliament in a year. And all of a sudden, the, the, this parliament had the daily attention. Every newspaper, every TV station had three times the journalists they had twelve months previously. Uh, we had, uh, uh, I think, on average, the, the parliament's passed about fifteen acts of parliament every year. Um, all this budgeting that had to happen very openly. In the past, it was the Secretary of State for Scotland and the Permanent Secretary, and they would just agree who was going to get which bit of money and a little bit would be kept aside in case there was any problems. All of that changed, and it all changed pretty much overnight. And I think everybody found the first two years really challenging. The new people found it challenging. The old people found it challenging. Uh, and, and then I found myself as a third First Minister in two and a half years, having to both steady the ship, which was critical, and and people were saying it might not last as a parliament. Um, so steadying the ship and just stabilising things and getting everybody to just calm down and focus on the job uh, was one thing. But at the same time, you know, I hadn't come into the parliament to do nothing. You know, I was, I was still relatively young. I was eager to make change. I had things I'd cared about in Scotland all my life. And I wanted to get on with that uh, that job. So 
trying to marry stabilising and steadying the ship with getting a radical programme of uh, legislation and action and leadership that could actually help change Scotland uh, in whatever time I was going to have in the post um, was a real uh, a real challenge. But, I mean, what a fantastic opportunity. I was only, I was, what, 41 years old? Um, still the youngest person to take on the job. I know Nicola looks a lot younger than me. <laughs> I, was, uh, uh, I was a few months younger than she was when I took it on. And uh, um, I felt I was ready. I'd like to be more ready. I had more time, when, but I was ready. I had, that's the case in any thing that happens in life. I was willing to take on the responsibility. So, what were and, your uh, what were your personal what were the what were your personal goals? The things that you thought right here's the here's the moment. What what were the things that you really wanted to to make a difference on? Well, I'd had a really great year as education minister. I mean, I haven't been finance minister for the first year and a half. Which was a an interesting challenge, um, but great to get to know the whole organisation. There's nothing better than doing a budget to really get to understand the whole organisation and everything that's going on, all the priorities. Um, I then spent twelve months as education minister, which I loved, and is probably the one job in my life that I've enjoyed more than anything else. I was a school teacher at heart. I, you know, education educating teenagers really matters to me, and uh, that was a fabulous time. But I wasn't going to let the opportunity to be First Minister pass me by without tackling some of the big things that I, uh, I, that I didn't like about Scotland. So, for example, sectarianism, um, which I had come across really after high school, because uh, I lived in an island where it wasn't really an issue, uh, but came across immediately arriving at university. Uh, Gosh, even at university? Oh, I remember the first few days at university, people asking each other what school they'd come from and, you know, and it was all coded language and people, that kind of fervour between the, not just the rival fans of football clubs, but it was it was deeper than that, the tribes. Um, so there was that, there was the issue of depopulation because I I did come from, I, the, the farm that I grew up in, Colgan Scordial, that's where the name comes from, um, that, that farm that my dad uh, uh, had a, that rented in the centre of the island, um had been cleared during the clearances. So that history, I was aware of that history of Scotland depopulating, people emigrating, and I wanted to turn that around um, and uh, and try and uh, have a very different Scotland that was attractive and people wanted to come to rather than leave. Um, and I was also keen to take on you know other, other issues as well. The criminal justice system seemed to me to be creaking at the seams. Um, as an MSP, I'd come across countless constituents, victims, Who's, in the court cases against the people that had committed crimes uh, on them um, had dropped for time reasons, hadn't been dealt with quickly enough by the police in the court. And I was horrified that that was happening in the 21st century in Scotland. Uh, and a whole range of other issues as well. But these were these were things that I felt the Scottish Parliament had been set up to, to tackle, not just to do the day-to-day work, of managing health and education and so on, but to actually look at the bigger picture in Scotland and say, who are we as a country and what do we want to be? And can we, either through laws or maybe just through leadership, start to change in the, in the right direction rather than the wrong? And that's very different for Scotland, wasn't it? You know, oh. pre the Parliament, we were used to, um, you know, being a small part of mm. a big machine, weren't we? And and the culture being basically established from elsewhere. Yep. The, you, 
you had the opportunity to create a political culture, I suppose, and say, well, this is this is how we want it to be. Well, I think I, I, people ask me what was different and what the the, the autonomy really was different. I, 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 you know, people think devolution is some kind of halfway house or something, but actually, the autonomy you felt as a first minister compared to what would have been the case if you'd been Secretary of State for Scotland. There's no, you know, there's I, no comparison. The way that a first minister speaks for Scotland oh, oh, is... No comparison at all. And um, I have loads of examples of this, but I think the best two examples are uh, the position that I took on immigration and, and attracting talent to Scotland and trying to reverse depopulation. That would never have happened. Under a Secretary of State for Scotland. You never have been had the freedom to do something different from the rest of the UK, to persuade colleagues to speak out on it. Um, it just would never have been the case. And uh, so using that position of First Minister to negotiate with London, to, 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 to speak to Scotland and persuade Scotland that things had to be different here um, was, a, was an, uh, a very, very different situation from what happened in the past. And the other example I like to, I like to use on this um, is that you know the, everybody's favourite piece of legislation, the smoking ban? But uh, uh, the, the smoking ban was controversial. Half the country hated it when it was brought in. It was only a popular after it was clearly a success, um, and everybody rallied round behind it. Uh, but can you imagine what would have happened if the if the smoking ban in Scotland had been an experiment in Scotland? It would have been the poll tax, wouldn't it? I, all over again by the by the cabinet in London yeah. saying, right, in Scotland you're not going to be allowed to do this anymore. Um, there would have been fights in the pubs and yeah. people would have been organising protests and, and so on. Who are they to tell us how to live our lives and our freedoms and so on? But the fact that we did it ourselves, that the Parliament passed the law, meant that people in Scotland respected it, even if they didn't agree with it. And that, to me, I mean, those those two, one's a law and one's kind of leadership, but they they show that when you make decisions for yourselves, when you take responsibility, um, even if people don't like those decisions then they can be willing to go with them if they're, if, they're, if they're persuaded you're acting in the public interest. I think it was amazing how quickly the smoking ban became things something people were proud of. And if you went down to London or Manchester or whatever, you were immediately horrified and had right. nothing good to say about going out and coming back <laughs> yeah. smelling of smoke because within about three months we'd forgotten how horrible you know that experience used to be. It was astonishing. I was genuinely worried about it because I, I, I hadn't been... Hadn't been convinced before we made the decision. Um, we had this big consultation that the late Tom McCabe uh, led for us as, as Deputy Health Minister. That uh, went out around the country and we got letters in, loads of letters from young people that were all in favour of some kind of ban. And that was what persuaded me that it was worth it was worth going with. Um, and then we made the announcement and of course everybody's got a problem with it. People are talking about... You know, folk in Scotland will never sit outside cafes and pubs. Never. That'll never happen. Nobody will ever go outside for a fag. That'll just not happen. The weather Scottish doesn't work in Scottish weather. That would be okay in a sunny place, but not in Scotland. Or, um, uh, you know, you can never make this work in, you know, some public institutions where people don't have much choice, like hospitals or prisons or whatever, uh, care homes and so on. And actually, you know, by being absolutely consistent and being honest with people about the implications. Um, I mean, Andy Kerr did a fantastic job of actually making sure the legislation was consistent all the way through um, so that when it came to the bit, the police understood the rules and the public understood the rules and that was good for everybody. Um, but then we, then the day approached and we'd chosen this day, which was the, uh, I think it was 
Sunday, this was it 26th of March? It was certainly around about that. That it was a Sunday anyway, um, towards the end of March 2006. And we deliberately chose a Sunday. And I think actually it might even have been the time when the clocks changed. So we'd chosen a day that it would be easiest for people to, to avoid smoking in a, in, a, in a public building. And uh, uh, word started to get out that there were parties being organised and pubs and places around Scotland which were like the last fag party uh, for the Saturday night. Um, and people were getting on board with it. They were starting to uh, think it was fun and you know something that, that they could do. But I still felt that probably there would be places in Scotland where people would provoke the police into arresting them or, you know, cause trouble for landlords or, or pub landlords or whatever. And actually on the morning, as, 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 as word came through that there was no trouble anywhere in Scotland that day, I've never felt more proud of the country. It was an amazing day. And so I, feel, I actually feel emotional about it right now, talking yeah. about it. It was like, it was, all, it was probably the thing that came closest to that first day in 99, because it felt like the parliament had grown up, Scotland had grown up, we were doing something different and challenging to ourselves, but that was going to be great for future generations. Yeah. No, it made a real, I thought it made a real statement of intent, like, why can't we do this? Like, uh, Let's do it. Yeah. Kind of, yes, we can. Yeah, absolutely. Like a couple of years before Obama. Absolutely. Yep. Why on earth would you want to sit with yep. your child in a cafe with people smoking or eat an expensive meal with people smoking at the next table? It feels now actually very barbaric well, and do horrible. Ever, do, you, do you ever have that experience where you go into um, an aeroplane toilet and there's a wee ashtray <laughs> in the door and you're in this confined space? And you think... And you think people used... I mean, I, and when you think back on it, I remember... Going up and down, I used to travel to London quite a bit in various roles, and uh, I remember sitting in these three seat sort of blocks on a plane with smokers on either side of me. Yeah. I remember and going on the mega bus to London beside a man smoking roll ups. There you go. You, you look back on it now and think, what? The I know we what were we doing? thinking about. I know, I know. But that Children. was just part of the culture. That it time. was. It was. I remember pushing my daughter in a pram uh, and somewhere busy, and there was someone with a cigarette, and it was. Veering up to her face. So, yes, yep. couldn't come fast enough for me. So, you were First Minister till 2007 and then lost the 2007 election. So, what went wrong there? What happened there? Well, I think not, there's nothing normal in politics anymore now, you know, but certainly back then, we were still pretty much, I think, in a political culture that ran in cycles. And sometimes time. Time runs out for a government that, you know, Labour had been in power in the UK for a decade at that point. Uh, transition was happening between uh, Blair and Brown. I had been, we had been in power and leading the coalition in, in Edinburgh for eight years. I had been First Minister for six. Um, the, the time for a change message starts to, eventually starts to ring true. And uh, so I think that was part of it. Um there were lots of other reasons as well, but I think that I, I think that was the big, biggest thing, and I, coming to terms with that afterwards was quite good for me. I think I, I, initially you take these things very personally, you know, to be to lose to lose an, an election, even very narrowly. We only lost it by about what was it three quarters of one percent or something like that. And one it was seat. one seat, yeah. Um, but you still feel it very personally. Um, to like maybe let people down or. Um, you know, you were the person who didn't get the message across or or, or whatever. Uh, 
And then you have the odd regret about things that you wanted to do, you've run out of time, you've not, not, not got the time to do them anymore. Um, but actually, the, you know, the more hindsight's a great thing and, and looking back, uh, you know, I can understand what was happening at the time now and um, I'll look back on the on the years before that with an incredible pride. Do you think the, so the, for, for young listeners, yep. um, the Scottish Parliament was set up um, with the uh, additional member system, yes. uh, proportional representation. Donald Dewar's kind of grand theory was that that meant that there would never be a single party mm. had a majority. Um, do you think that in retrospect, was that a mistake? I think it was right to have a proportional system because, uh, again, we, have, we need to go back 25 years here, uh, even further than the 20 years. Uh, there was a worry in some parts of Scotland that the parliament would be run by a min- uh, less than 50% of the population who voted in a bloc in the central belt uh, for the Labour Party. And we wanted the parliament to be, and Donald and I talked about this as the legislation was coming through, uh, we wanted the parliament to be a representative of all of Scotland and, and a parliament in which all of Scotland could have some faith and some voice. And the way to secure that was to have a, a, a proportional representation system. Whether we've got the right proportional representation system is maybe another issue mm. because it has delivered a majority for one party in, in, in one session uh, without them having 50% of the vote. So whether it's the right proportional system, I think, is maybe an issue. But the principle of having a proportional system was was right. It was a new parliament, and it couldn't be set up in the old way. Yeah. Do you think, so the SNP um, outright majority in 2012, do you think that was like an outlier result, a freak? There was an element of, of, of luck in it. Uh, for people who don't follow the details of this, and I wouldn't expect anybody to, because uh, it's mind-numbingly boring, but... Uh, you do uh, need a maths degree to some extent. To do this. There is, there is, uh, there's a certain level that you have to reach um, as a party for the for the regional lists in each of the eight regions. A certain percentage you have to reach before you get even one of the MSPs from the list. And if uh, a number, if, if the vote between the parties is spread too thinly, and too many of the parties get a percentage that's less than that then the party that's top can get more MSPs than they might otherwise have got if it was all strictly percentage-based. So it's not, although it's called a proportional system, there is a kind of minimum level you have to reach under this system uh, before you get even one MSP. And that can mean that the winner does better than their percentage would actually uh, uh, allow for. And that was, ten- that was really, it kind of happened almost in almost every election, but it happened dramatically in 2012 mm. or 2011. Mm, mm, mm. So looking back on the 20 years, we've mentioned a few highlights. Are there any other things that really stand out to you as the, the great moments? Well, the farm that I grew up in, was, uh, uh, my, my dad was a shepherd, it was a sheep farm, tenant farm. Um, uh, and the Isle of Arran, where I grew up, uh, was still affected by the old uh, feudal tenure uh, arrangements um, where people had to get permission to do things to their houses and, and so on. Uh, so when the Parliament was passing its its land reforms, um, I felt emotional those days because uh, we did two things really. We, we abolished the old feudal tenure regime, which was a great thing, liberating um, families across Scotland. 
hasn't gone far enough. We need to go further, but it's uh, it was a big, big step. We also created national parks, which remarkably had been national parks had been invented by a Scottish guy John Muir, yeah, who course. went to America and created national parks. And in Scotland, we were one of the few developed countries in the world that didn't have any. It was just a bizarre situation, but it was partly because the issue had never had attention at Westminster because there were so many other things going on over these years. So um, time had been found to create national parks in England, but it never happened in Scotland. Uh, so the fact that the Parliament was able to create those new national parks, um, for me as a countryside person, was a great thing. But also, it was kind of right and wrong, really, because yeah. our, our guy had gone and done it elsewhere in the world, and yet we didn't have it ourselves. And you look at Scotland and the way people enjoy it and tourism, which is such a big industry, and it does seem a crazy gap. Aye, absolutely. Um, and the, the other, and I mean, I also had a, a wider environmental interest in... Uh, so things like starting to tackle a recycling record, when you get more renewable energy, uh, uh, those sort of developments meant a lot to me. I had been a an environmental campaigner in my twenties, and, and there were lots of wee things like that that over the years I had been involved in campaigning on that suddenly we had the power to do something about. And, uh, and again, you look at one, Scotland. There's, there's one area where I've maybe got a. I don't have any personal regrets, but I think the Parliament maybe has not quite shaped up, and that's. Uh, on the economy, I think in the first decade, um, we were, uh, Scotland was doing quite well economically and we were, we were doing a lot of things to try and encourage entrepreneurship and uh, attract talented people to come and live in Scotland and attract companies, which we did in, uh, uh, at, at quite a high level uh, for a while. And then, of course, the, 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 the crash happened with the banks and the banks were the two biggest the, the the Bank of Scotland and the Royal Bank of Scotland were the two biggest uh, companies in Scotland, and they um, their decline in scale since then, I don't think has really been replaced by anything. We might still have a similar number of jobs around, but the money that they spent in Scotland on everything from lawyers to marketing to um, Cleaners, you know, I mean, yeah. this, the and scale infrastructure, of the you know, buying cars and going and, out for dinner, and and the, and the decision making that happened in Scotland yeah. was very powerful. I used to have a meeting when I was first minister. I had I had a a behind the scenes meeting every six months or so with what we called the big six. There were there were six big firms in the FTSE one hundred: um, the Royal Bank of Scotland, the Bank of Scotland, uh, Scottish Power, Scottish and Southern Energy, Scottish and Newcastle, and Standard Life. Now, the only one of them that is anything like what it was then in terms of ownership or size uh, these days is Scottish Southern Energy. Uh, still headquartered in Perth and based in Scotland and, and still a very successful company. The others, the Royal Bank's much smaller. The Bank of Scotland's now owned uh, outside, of, outside of Scotland. The uh, Scottish Newcastle's owned outside of Scotland. Scottish Power's owned outside of Scotland. And uh, uh, Standard Life has merged. And... Uh, I think that's an interesting tale there, you know, that you can't lose that level of uh, decision-making, power, spending, um, employment, the attraction of good quality jobs um, without trying to find a replacement for it. And I'm not sure over the last decade that there's been a good enough debate in Scotland, not just at Hollywood, but elsewhere as well. For what, what, how do we replace that? Mm-hmm. Um, because we need you need to have some big firms that are making decisions and investment 
proposals based here in Scotland and you need to back them uh, and make sure that uh, the world knows about it because then the world wants to come here. And so that, so my last question really was hopes for the future. So is that what, would that be well, a headline, one that, of them? the next generation of politicians are going to take that up. I think, you know, rightly there's a lot of debate in Scotland on social policy issues and health and education and so on. But I think we need to get our economic strategy right. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's to me, that would be the number one uh, challenge, difficult challenge, uh, that if I was a young politician today, I would be trying to turn my attention to. Um there's a lot of unfinished business as well. You know, some things don't go away. You know, we were, get, we were getting there with sectarianism, but it's creeping back. Uh, you've got to be on top of these issues uh, all the time. Um, and I don't think anybody can predict what the next 20 years is going to hold. I mean, we would never have predicted everything that's happened in, in, no. in 1999. Absolutely uh, not. Well, I mean, how different... What we different? did know was that we had a blank sheet. I mean, we had a country that was not in great shape, but had hopes and our job was to go and try and reflect those hopes and you know overall i think we did not a bad job there's been bad moments there's been good moments but the country's more confident and stronger than we were 20 years ago and i think more content with who we are what we are um feeling more positive about it well we we bit to go yet but uh that's uh, a really that's always a work in progress that's a really cheering and upbeat note to end on thank you so much thank you